It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Damrich, former CEO of the National Marine Manufacturers Association and the IPC Connecting Electronic Circuits Association. Tom was president of NMMA for 21 years, and upon assuming the role, he knew he had to get the industry working together and focused on things everyone could agree on. One of the first things he tackled was focusing on market expansion efforts that were also measurable. His leadership helped unify the industry to do just that with the Discover Boating campaign. Tom also served as president of IPC, an international trade association of companies producing printed circuit boards and doing electronics manufacturing services. After retiring from the NMMA in 2019, Tom has continued to service on a number of boards of directors and has chaired or served on over 15 boards, including both nonprofit and for-profit companies. Tom has a BA in economics, an MBA in finance, and an MS in accountancy, and a doctorate of business administration, all from DePaul University in Chicago. Tom Dambridge, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brant. Glad to be with you. Uh, good to have you here today again and uh, connect with you. We spoke a few weeks back, and as uh, we do with all of our podcasts, we kind of like to start at your beginning. Tell us a little bit about uh, your early life and uh, you know where you grew up, mom and dad, and brothers and sisters. So I grew up in uh, Southern Illinois near St. Louis, a town called East St. Louis. Right. Um, I have uh, six siblings. I'm the, I'm wow. the middle, uh, middle child of seven. Uh, however, the, the three older were six, eight, and 10 years older than me, and the younger were two, four, and seven years younger. Wow. I'm sorry, six, eight, and 10 years older, and two, four, and seven years younger. So I often uh, say that I have the characteristics of both a middle child and a uh, first child. So, <laughs> right. so I was right. the oldest right. of the youngest, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. What, but, did, what did mom and dad do? Uh, mom was pretty busy in the home, it sounds like. Well, she was, but she also uh, taught uh, grade school at a Catholic grade yeah. school, special education. Cool. Uh, my father uh, owned his own business, a dry uh -huh. cleaner. So, okay. I mean, we had... Uh, the double uh, income family, uh, you know, well before that became the popular yeah. thing to do. But. Yeah, cool, cool. What were some of the early memories that you had growing up? Uh, you know, things that maybe mom and dad either taught you or was there a favorite uncle or aunt or grandparent that that had an impressionable role on you? So in my, my earliest years, uh, we lived right next door to uh, my aunt and uncle, my dad's uh -huh. mother, 
and uh, my, my dad's sister and her husband and my dad's brother live with them as well. Right. And uh, I used to go over there almost every day to visit, and they'd always give me uh, saltine crackers with grape jelly, <laughs> uh, which, which was a real treat for me then. Uh, so that, that is one of my uh, fondest memories. Uh, we moved when I was uh, three years old, and uh, you know, I just remember leaving the house in the morning at the crack of dawn, finding my friends, going out and playing all day, yeah. not coming home until dinner time, and nobody ever worried about where we were or yeah. what we were doing. Life was different back then. I, I lived a similar youth, but yeah, it was very different. Were you a good student in school? So that's interesting. I was uh, I was a good student in uh, high school and college, um, but I frequently tell the story about when I came home with my first report card in first grade. I had straight C's, and I was so proud because they all looked the same. <laughs> and, and I showed it to my mother, who was a teacher, and uh, with great pride. And she looked at it and she said, "Well, I don't think that's so hot." <laughs> And it just crushed me. Oh, man. And I think it took the rest of my uh, grade school years to get my my enthusiasm or motivation or confidence back to be a good student. But I did, and, and I was a, a good student in, in high school and college. Amazing how some of those impressionable things early on can can really have that uh, kind of impact on you. Or yeah. some, Did you have some favorite teachers? Did you were involved in any sports in school? What were kind of some of the act, extracurricular activities you were involved with? So I played some uh, baseball as a youth, but I did not play a lot of sports. Um, I, you know, in high school, I was uh, on the school paper. I was on the debate team. Uh, uh, I, I probably did more intellectual pursuits than athletic pursuits. Um, the, uh, you know, in, in high school, it's interesting. So I, growing up in East St. Louis, in the 50s and early 60s. It was during, you know, the Jim Crow days. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I was fortunate in high school to have uh, a priest, Father Genesio, who really uh, taught me and others that uh, we were all equal, regardless of the yeah. color of our skin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about racism these days. And, you know, nobody's born racist. It's a learned behavior. And uh, I credit uh, Father Genesio for teaching me as best he could um, to treat all people with dignity and respect and and equality. Um, And I think that that has been one of the more profound experiences the teachers had on me. Very much a biblical principle. Yeah. Good for him. I love that. What about entrepreneurial activities? Did you have the... uh ubiquitous paper route or, you know, sell Christmas cards at Christmas time or other things that you did to raise money and have fun with growing up? So I did have the paper route uh, from, I guess, maybe I was seven years old or something. I don't remember, but I had my bike and I had my papers and I had my route and I delivered them. And every Friday I'd go door to door and make my collections for the week. And uh, I had a newspaper stand on on Sundays to sell the Sunday paper. And when I graduated from Paperboy, I, at a very early age, went to work for my father in uh, his uh, dry cleaners uh, and did that all the way through high school. Um, and that's where I earned my spending money. Yeah. 
Well, you went on to DePaul University um, and got quite a few degrees there. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You had a, a good long education and then went on as well, I think, to get another master's at Western Governors. Tell us about your choice of DePaul. Was that a natural one for you or was there you know, other factors that played into your going there? So uh, I don't know. This is probably a bit of an unusual story, but growing up, you know, both parents worked because they had to. We, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, although when you're a kid, you don't really know that. Uh, but I was a first generation college student. I had older siblings who went to college, but uh, I didn't get a lot of direction about college. And so I went to my college counselor in high school and he threw 70 brochures at me and said, take a look at these. So I, I took them home and I paged through them and I picked the three that had the lowest application fee. Ah, it was $10. Yeah. And I, I'll mention that, you know, it never occurred to me in high school that I could go to college anywhere further than a day's drive hmm. from my house. Yeah. And so I applied to DePaul, University of Illinois, and DePaul in Greencastle, Indiana. And to be honest with you, the decision which one to go to came down to which one was going to give me the most financial aid, so it was going to cost me the least, and that was DePaul. Mm -hmm. And when I showed up there in the fall of 1970, I had never seen the school until I set foot on it to, to matriculate. Yeah, yeah, cool. But yeah, I loved it. liked it because you hung out there a long time. I did. I loved the Paul. I loved the city. Uh, I, uh, you know, I've stayed in the city the rest of my life here, and uh, yeah. it's been a great experience. Yeah. And you uh, did some early studies in economics. Then I know you went on and got an MS in accounting. It seems like the numbers kind of came to you. Was that a natural thing or did you decide that that was the area you wanted to study? How did you kind of get into the accounting, economics, finance area? So when I started out, I, I thought I wanted to be a political science major. But after the first course, I decided that wasn't for me. So I took an economics course and I just loved it. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, I think... I think economics is just a fantastic major because it teaches you how to think and it gives you a gives you a perspective on things that are happening in the world that's a little different than a lot of other people have. Yeah. And uh, so I then, you know, after the graduating, I uh, I went to work at DePaul as assistant director of housing and um, pursued my uh, MBA there with yeah. a, a concentration in finance. Um, few years later, uh, my wife does not like to see me doing nothing. She just cannot stand seeing me doing nothing. So she told me to go back to school. And so I went back and got my master of science in accounting and uh, uh, sat for the CPA exam and passed it. And uh, I've always been a lifelong learner. And my first, uh, well, probably my second boss, third boss, actually, uh, when I was working for the Illinois Bankers Association, had his DBA, his Doctorate of Business Administration from Indiana. And I always thought that that would be, I would like to get my Doctorate of Business Administration. And as it turned out, DePaul started offering one um, just a few years ago. And at age 63, mm. I decided to enroll in the Doctor of Business Administration program at DePaul. Yeah. It was a three-year program. It was a lot of work. Um, but I graduated in 2019. And uh, uh, it, I, would do it, I would do it again. I yeah. love it. Yeah. I love every minute of it. 
Fantastic. God, lifelong learner. I love it. And during those college years, uh, did you go back home and work in dad's dry cleaning uh, shop or was there other work that you had on campus? So I worked part-time on campus at the university. Uh, And I guess it was, uh, I went home the summer after my freshman year, but after the summer after my sophomore year, I stayed in Chicago and I worked in a warehouse on the South side, um, driving a forklift truck, Hmm. uh, picking orders of food. It was food goods to be put on trucks and shipped out. And, uh, interesting story here. Um, I, I was, what was I, 19, 20 years old. I had no training on operating a forklift. They put me on a forklift and put me to work. Oh my gosh. Well, one night I was on the night shift and one night I, uh, was probably driving a little too fast, uh, trying to get my work done. And I crashed the forklift into these racks, holding all this food and bent them and a big crate of spam came falling from 40 feet in the air down on top of the, the forklift, which was covered. So I was protected. I wasn't hurt. And uh, at the end of the night, the boss called me in and he said, Tom, I should fire you for this. But he said, you work so hard. I'm not going to fire you. I'm just going to put you on the dock. All you're going to do is load trucks. So you don't have to drive that forklift very far. But he still gave me no training. So I'm loading my first truck and I put a pallet in, I go back out, I get another pallet, I bring it into the truck and I'm going to put it on top of the first pallet. So I'm watching the pallet to clear the top of the pallet that was already in place and the top of the forklift went through the roof of the truck. (laughs) The truck driver's standing there and he says, kid, I'd let it go, but this is a leased truck. I got to report it. (laughs) So he reported at the end of the night, the boss called me and he said, Tom, I should fire you, (laughs) but I'm not going to. I'm going to transfer you to another warehouse where you will never drive a forklift again and you will unload trucks by hand. (laughs) And that's what I did the rest of the summer. (laughs) I love it. Oh, that's great. But it it gets to what the lesson there was, you know, you've got to give people training that's right. That they yeah. have the skills they need to do the job. And, yeah. and you can't just expect to put people in a job that they've had no training for and expect to, to excel at it. Throw them in the deep end and expect them to swim. Right? Exactly. Yes, I love it. So what was that first real job when you got out of school? Was it with the Illinois Bankers Association? Is that where you started your career? No. So my first real job, uh, when I graduated from DePaul, I was the assistant director of housing at DePaul. Mm-hmm. And the director of housing was also the director of the student union and had just assumed responsibility as director of athletics. Wow. So he was spending 98% of his time in athletics. And I was assistant director of housing, but I was running student housing for DePaul University Mm. right out of college. Wow. Tremendous amount of responsibility, authority, independence, freedom. And it was a tremendous growth opportunity. Now, did you did you have people reporting to you in that role as well, or are you an individual contributor? So I had uh, I had an assistant who reported to me, and then of course all the uh, resident advisors reported to me. Yeah, yeah. We also had a summer conference program, so I had a whole crew of workers who uh, would clean the rooms every day as the we had turnover in the in the dorm rooms during yeah. the summer conference period. So, what kind of training did you get for that job, Tom? Uh, none. <laughs> <laughs> they, they threw you into that one too. 
Yeah. I mean, I had been a resident advisor myself. I had been uh, chairman of the Student Activities Council. I, you know, and, and so I had, I had managed a lot of things, but kind of uh, worked your way into that job. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I love it. And then uh, how did you kind of get into the finance sector then? What, how did you, you know, kind of utilize all those degrees in, in accounting? From the housing department, I went downtown to uh, work on my MBA and got a job uh, working for the dean of the graduate school of business. Uh-huh. And, and as I was finishing up my MBA, uh, he was contacted by a friend of his who was the president of the uh, Illinois Bankers Association, said, I'm looking for a director of education. You got anybody you could suggest to me? And the dean knew I'd be leaving soon. And so he suggested uh, me and I met uh, with the president of Illinois Bankers Association. And long story short, he hired me and I was there for 13 years and rose from director of education to senior vice president, the number two guy there. So cool. And then it looks like went and spent a little, uh, a few years in the electronics industry. How how did you kind of make that pivot? Well, so... My boss at the Illinois Bankers Association was young. I mean, he was probably 15 years from retirement, and I had been there 13 years. And so I wasn't going to be able to succeed him anytime soon. And I wanted I wanted to run my own association. I wanted to be the CEO of an association. Hmm. So I began interviewing. And uh, I, I interviewed for a lot of CEO jobs. And uh, I finally landed one as the CEO of uh, IPC, the Institute for uh, Connecting Electronic Circuits, uh, and started that in uh, January of 1999, I think. So mm-hmm. um, it was interesting, though, and I tell people, you know, I learned something with every interview I did. I probably did a dozen. I probably interviewed for a dozen or more CEO jobs. That I didn't get. And, and they learned, were all and associations. They were all, they were all associations. You knew you wanted to be involved in association. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, uh, I learned something from every interview that made me a better interviewer the next time. What were some of those lessons that you learned in that interview process? Well, I'll give you an example. So uh, in one interview, I was interviewing for the Illinois State Association of School Boards. And they asked me toward the end of the interview, which had been going very well. They said, uh, so you send your kids to private school. How are you going to be a representative mm. for public education? Mm. I was stumped. Yeah. But on the drive home, the answer came to me. And, and it was that my uh, credibility, authority, whatever, as a spokesman for public education did not derive from my personal experience. It derived from who I represented. Mm. which were the public school boards. And so um, you just, you just, it it forced you to think deeper into things and uh, helped me to think more quickly on my feet uh, about what, you know, what really was my role as the CEO. So, so what made you select the, was it IPC association, right? The the electronic industries, what, 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 what kind of shown, you know, light kind of shine from that opportunity that was different from all the others made you go in that direction. So IPC was, uh, was a bigger association. Um, it was at the time, I think about $16 million. Uh, I eventually grew that to $32 million. Um, it was, I mean, they, they had great, 
um, engagement from the members. Uh, and it just looked like a real opportunity to, to, to be able to have an impact. And what I, what I learned, I mean, working for entrepreneurs, because these were all entrepreneurs in the sure. electronics industry, making yeah. print circuit boards and doing electronics assembly, is that I loved working for entrepreneurs. I loved their passion. I loved the risk they took. I loved mm. the, uh, you know, they were how committed they were to, to both their company and their industry. And uh, so, uh, you know, when I moved from electronics to the boating industry, it was the same thing. I was working largely for entrepreneurs. We had some Fortune 100 companies in the in the industry too, but it was largely entrepreneurs, and um, uh, they're just great people. Now, I want to ask you about that because, again, great pivot, right? Electronics to the the, the you know sport fish and boating industry. Had that been a passion of yours? Are you, uh, you know, someone that enjoyed out in the water or did this just come along as just another great association to, to lead and, and develop or, or a combination of both? So at the time I was not a boater. However, today I do own a boat and I enjoy right. boating. But at the time I, I was not a boater. Um, I had friends who had boats. I'd been boating, but I was not a boat owner myself. I was not a fisherman myself. Uh, but association executives uh, quickly learn uh, everything they need to know about new industries. Every yeah. industry has its own jargon, its own acronyms. Um, but you learn it quickly. And uh, I quickly did become passionate about boating and about the boating industry. So Yeah, yeah. Was it unusual that they selected you having not been, you know, that active as a boater? Or, or was the selection criteria really kind of due to your past association creds? So yeah, they were they were really looking for somebody who could effectively lead the association. Yeah, who could, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, the association, especially as I moved to NMMA, it was a a larger group, and you know, we were involved in certifying boats, doing industry statistics, producing boat shows, doing government advocacy, and uh, you know, and they needed somebody who could effectively manage what was a pretty complex. Uh, organization. Right, right. Now you retired from there, I think it was back in October of 19, just just before the pandemic kind of hit us all. Um, but you spent, you know, a good 20 years there. Tell us about some of the challenges that the MMMA, you know, where was it when it began? We sp spoke a little bit about that in the in the bio, you know, when we introduced you and there was obviously some things to get straightened out. And, you know, tell us just a little bit more about the journey, your, your, particularly your leadership uh, you know, opportunities there over the years, the decades. Literally. So uh, when I joined NMMA, it was about a $32 million association. Mm. Um, and that's annual fees, right? Is that uh, what that's based on? Well, that was that, that was membership dues. It was boat show revenues. It right. was certification fees. It was everything. Yeah. Um, and the prior CEO had left two years before I started. And so the mm -hmm. organization had been uh, operating without a permanent CEO for two years. And they had an internal guy that had been kind of acting, um, was not given the title, but was kind of acting. And then they brought in a, an industry person, kind of part-time CEO to advise this internal person. And Anyway, uh, you can imagine that any organization that, that has, without the leadership of a CEO for two years, is wow. is a little bit of a mess. Measureless. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> and 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 Pardon frankly, the <laughs> frankly, the uh, the industry's perception of the organization was not very positive. There mm-hmm. were strong supporters who knew they needed the association, but many thought that the association had completely lost touch with its members and the industry. Wow. Uh, I remember one of my first meetings with the staff. They said, you know, we got a big problem. The trade press is constantly criticizing us mm. and we don't know what to do. And so actually the first thing I did was uh, after learning as much as I could, I, I invited all the trade press to Chicago to meet with me at one time. And I started the whole meeting off with a, a presentation about 10 myths about about NMMA. And, and, and all, all the, the rumors neg- that have been circulating. Yeah. I took on all the negatives yeah. directly head on and addressed them. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of my style there on. And, and we grew. We acquired boat shows. Um, we, uh, we developed a whole industry marketing campaign called Discover Boating. So mm-hmm. we're spending about 12 to $15 million a year. So sold the industry on contributing 12 to $15 million a year to do that. Uh, it was a very successful campaign. Things were going along great. And then the uh, global financial crisis happened in 2008. Yeah. And the association went from $64 million in revenues to $32 million in revenues. Back down again. And I had to reduce the staff from 140 to 87. Yikes. It was an incredibly, incredibly painful period. Yeah. Uh, but we came through it uh, healthy and uh, realized that, you know, uh, we grew it back to 64 million, but we, right. we grew it back to 64 million with 105 employees. Mm-hmm. We, we really didn't need 140 yeah. to, do it, to do it all if we focused on things that were most important to the industry. Right. Right. So uh, we got through that. And as I say, we grew it back to 64 million. And then our biggest boat show was the Miami International Boat Show. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I mean, it drove membership, it drove revenues, it drove visibility and, and prestige. I mean, it, it, it helped us to do a lot of the things we were able to do. Now, is that the one that's held in Fort Lauderdale or is that actually a separate show? Cause I know no, it's in, it's in Miami. It's a Miami. separate show. It's uh, equal in size to the Fort Lauderdale show, but it's not, doesn't have the big super yachts. Got it. Um, and the, the Miami beach convention center, this is about 2015 or 16 said they were closing for renovations. The show would have to find a new location. Oh, my. Well, this was a million-square-foot show, and you can't have the Miami Boat Show in Orlando. So right. <laughs> we, we, had, we had to find a place in Miami, and we had about 12 months to do it. Wow. And, and so uh, the city of Miami had a, uh, a greenfield site that was called Miami Marine Stadium, and there was a – a, they call it a stadium, but it was like a bleachers that faced a, a, a lagoon of water where they used to do a lot of water shows and things. Right. But there was uh, many acres upland of that. And so we worked with the city and they spent $20 million to put in infrastructure we needed to do the show, which was wow. mostly electricity and paving and all that sort of things. And then we built um, 600,000 square feet of tents and built a 700-boat marina oh every year to house the show and then tore it down every year. Wow. And uh, during that period, um, the uh, residents of the city of, of Key Biscayne did not want the boat show in that location. Hmm. 
So they took us to court and they were fighting us the whole way. And if we lost those court challenges, the show would not be held. And so essentially we were, we risked everything we had on holding this show in Miami. Wow. I remember a board meeting where the, I said to the board, look, this was in July. The show was in February. I said, one, one choice is we could just stop now and we'll lose about eight or nine million dollars based mm-hmm. on commitments we've made that we're going to have to pay for. I said, or we can go forward, produce the show, and one of two things happens. Um, we're successful. We beat back these legal challenges and the show happens. And we're probably going to lose about eight or nine million dollars because it cost <laughs> yeah, so yeah. much more to produce the show there yeah, uh, yeah. than it did in its original location. Right. Or Keep Escape is successful, and they stop the show a month or two weeks before the show was to happen. In which case, every commitment is fully made, and if that happens, we'll lose twenty million dollars. Oh, oh, and by the way, twenty million dollars is all we have. Yeah. Yeah. And so the board, I, I mean, you never saw horrible choices. <laughs> so many scared faces as you looked around the room. Yeah. And they said, Tom, what what do you recommend? And I said, I don't think we have any choice but to go forward. Yeah. And they said, Okay, then we're all in. Let's go forward. Right. And we did, and we succeeded. And uh it was uh came right down to the wire as to whether or not we were gonna have the show, but we did. So yeah. And we had the show there very successfully, uh for about seven years thereafter. So, did you have the legal challenge every year? No, no, no. Was, we we beat back the legal time. challenge. We wrapped them all up in the second year. Yeah, right. But right. Uh, wow, challenge. Yeah, yeah. Now the the, the Associations Act is nonprofits, right? Yes. So, do you have a board that you report to that are kind of governing? What's the structure of those associations? Oh yeah, we we had a, we I had a board of directors and an executive committee right. that. Uh, you know, provided the strategic direction um, that uh, approved the budget. Uh, and, you know, we took this, this, my board over the course of the 20 years uh, took some really strong, tough decisions that they had to make. Uh, you know, I had one, I had one chairman that always talked about us taking a courage pill. <laughs> um, you know, let's have the courage to do what we know is the right thing to do. Yeah. Wow. I love and that. so along the way, we took a voluntary certification program and made it mandatory for membership. Hmm. Uh, we created the Discover Voting Program and created a mandatory funding model. Hmm. Uh, and I guess not amazingly, but partially amazingly, uh, this same uh, chairman said to me, Tom, if, if you lead, they will follow. And they did. What, what led you to retirement back in October 19? Well, I'd been at it 21 years. Um, we had come through the Miami Boat Show difficulty. I, I'll tell you that the year that we were playing the Miami Boat Show, because of the risk and the high stakes involved, I'm not sure I got a good night's sleep one night that entire year. <laughs> I can imagine. And it, it, it just took a lot out of me. It takes a toll and, on you. Yeah. And, you know, I tell the worst part wasn't, me or wasn't the stress I was having it. I had a staff of really committed people. Right. And during that year, they worked so hard. 
that I was concerned about them. And we, I needed to succeed for them and for the industry. And that was the, that was the hardest part. Did you uh, anoint a successor from the ranks as you, uh, you know, stepped down from the organization there? Well, I tried to get a couple of people internally ready to take over the job, but the, you know, the board decided to do a, a national search and the internal candidates were considered, but at the end of the day, they, they hired an, an external candidate yeah. to replace yeah. me. Now, what, what do you do to keep yourself busy so your wife's not worried about you? So when you say I retired, uh, Brant, I, I retired. I retired from stress and responsibility, not from work. I, not from work, I love right. to work, and so I am probably as busy today as I've ever been. Good for you. Uh, so I, I have a friend who runs the National Association of Healthcare Quality, and I am I am helping her. It started out as a part time consultant, then when I retired, but it has uh, evolved into a full time job. Um, but I'm also on a couple of boards. I uh, do a little consulting in the marine industry. Uh, you know, I got my hand in a lot of different things and I'm, I'm very busy. Uh, I also have 12 grandchildren. Fantastic. Uh, so there is uh, So your wife's not worried. My wife's not worried. If anything, it's uh, time. Can you stop working for a minute and, and spend some time with us? <laughs> I love it. That's great. Well, listen, Tom, this has been a real pleasure and we're, we're just about out of time, but we always like to ask our guests to, you know, kind of share some of their wisdom and, and, you know, sage advice about, you know, looking towards their career and, and maybe making it into the corner office someday. You know, what, what would you say are some of the two or three key points that help guide you, you know, in your success in the various corner offices that you've held over the decades? You know, one of the most profound pieces of advice I got, I got from my father. Mm-hmm. So he owned a dry cleaners. I worked in the cleaners at the front mm-hmm. desk. So I was engaging with the public constantly. And anyone who's works with the public knows that, that they're not always nice. Mm-hmm. And some people would come in and they'd just be nasty to you. Yeah. And my dad took me aside one day and he said, Tom, he said, when they're nasty to you, it's not about you. Don't take it personally. Yeah. He said, you don't know what's going on in their life. Did they just right. have a fight with their wife? Did they just right. have a car accident? Did someone die? Do they have a child who's sick? He said, you don't know what's going on in their life. Mm-hmm. So it's not about you. Do not take it personally. And that has been a guiding principle that has helped me uh, throughout my career. So, you know, people come at me. I just I don't take it personally. And I try to understand, uh, listen and understand their point of view to find where the common ground is. Mm -hmm. And another, you know, one of the manufacturers, uh, boat manufacturers has been it was on my board the entire time I was there uh, once told me. She said, Tom, all the problems I ever had have been resolved, except the ones I have today, and they will be resolved too. And if you keep things in that perspective, it it, it just helps you uh, do your job. Yeah, navigate. Love it. Well, Tom Damrich, most recently president of the National Marines Manufacturers Association, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. My pleasure, Brant.
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.